Please open your Bibles to Revelation 4 and 5. There should be no division between the two. And when I read it, um, there's not a man alive that can actually give, by simply reading the words, a depiction of what is happening here. Now, what I'm going to show you right now, I wanted to show you last week. They put the wrong one up. So to give you some sort of idea and perception of the magnitude of what's taking place here, I have an eight-minute clip. So rather than reviewing chapter four, which was a big part of these four cherubims with the faces, but it also talked about wheels, and the last one didn't have any wheels in it. So um, before we actually get into the study, I want to prep you a little bit with the magnitude of this heavenly scene. With that being said, it lasts for roughly seven, eight minutes. Let's run it. Give you a little different perspective. (laughs) Picture's worth a thousand words, and you know, I can read this, but uh, just doesn't capture. And of course, this doesn't come anywhere near to the reality of what's really there. But it's happening as we gather this morning. Because we read in uh, chapter 4, verse 8, they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. As we look at chapter 4 and 5, we are entering the third division of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 is the things that John saw on the island of Patmos. The year would have been roughly 96 AD. He would have been a very old man at this time. And he was told to write the things that are. That's chapters two and three, the church age, and it gives seven letters to seven churches, seven promises. Seven is a predominant number, as we're going to see when we get into chapter five. And so as we enter four and five, we are now beginning the third division of the book. And the scene of chapter five is set in heaven, and this is prior to the events of the great tribulation. I believe the church uh, is in heaven with him, and um, the throne we're also introduced to, that was our study last week, the throne of God, was the center, really, of chapter four. The lion and the lamb, and these four living zoas, or creatures, Here in Ezekiel, they correctly referred to them as cherubim, and there was four of them. Now, this isn't in my notes, it's just coming to my head, but actually at one time there were five. And that would have been not underneath, but above. When we read about Lucifer, it talks about him being in the garden, but then he said, uh, you were the anointed cherub that covers. And the question, when did he cover and where, it would have been the most beautiful creature and the wisest creature that the Father ever made. And he says, you were the anointed cherub that covers. And my guess there is, what isn't there now is because he was cast down. So I could be wrong with that, and I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but I want to know what he was covering. And if he's more powerful than these other four cherubim that are underneath, um, of course he's left out of the scenario. And he's really the one um, that is 
doing everything he can to bring about a one-world government so that he can be worshipped as he's always desired. Uh, The chapter opens here, you notice, with the word and. There should be no division between uh, chapter four and five. It's a continuing thought. Uh, This little conjunction uh, indicates that there is something before it. It is sort of the string that ties us back to chapter four. Um, So actually, we could have just call it chapter four, but it's one continuing thought, which brings us to verse one. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So now we have the number seven coming up again. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is what is a seal and what is written in it. Uh, It's the father who holds his hand, a scroll which is called, which is rolled, I should say, tightly, sealed closely with seven seals. Now, the historian uh, Stauffer is the one who calls to our attention to the fact that Roman law required that a will be sealed with seven times. As illustrated in the wills left by Augustus and Verpastian, which is interesting that this method was used. We know that in the book of Revelation, number seven is not just an accidental number, and um, it wasn't used only because they used it in Rome. You have seven being predominant, the predominant number through the whole the whole book of Revelation. So the question comes up, what is the scroll and what does it contain? Would you turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter seven, and we're just gonna read three verses from there. Daniel seven, and while you're turning, Dr. Harry Ironside has suggested that the title deed to the world is what is in the hand of the Father. You'll remember that when the children of Israel were going into captivity, Jeremiah would have been the prophet, and the Lord tells Jeremiah um, to go and buy some land right around Jerusalem and get the title deed for it because God promised the children of Israel that they're going to come back. So to sort of show a picture of this, is that Jeremiah wants to go buy a piece of property and uh, keep the title deed because you're gonna need it because I'm bringing your people back that they were going to return to the land. If you're taking notes, that's Jeremiah uh, 32, six through five. Well, who holds the title deed to the earth down here? We know that Lucifer, Satan, was defeated on Calvary's cross. Good place for an amen. And uh, it says, we see all things at his feet. But then it goes on and clarifies, yet we don't see all things at his feet yet. Even though he purchased this planet back, he purchased you, he purchased me, um, we don't see all things under the Lord Jesus' feet yet. They're still the God of this world. And so in Daniel 7, 
we have, picking it up in verse 13, Daniel's watching in the night visions, plural, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him to give him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which will never be destroyed. Now, this is in contrast to all the other worldly kingdoms that have come, beginning with Egypt, going to Assyria, um, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Grecian with Alexander the Great, then the Roman Empire, and then one that's yet future that the Antichrist will rule over called the revived Roman Empire. In Daniel, it was the one with the ten toes at the, at the bottom of the, um, of the image of Nebuchadnezzar's image. So Dr. Harry Ironsides believes this is actually the title deed of who has the oversight. Well, Daniel 7 says that his dominion is going to be an everlasting one. And um, it will, especially during the millennial reign, uh, he will own the title deed to this planet. After that, what do we have? Well, we have a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, For the first heaven and the first earth, we're told, passed away. Turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. Interesting timing with this because go to chapter 5. And uh, we're going to read about a flying scroll. And I'll come back and comment on it. In Zechariah, which is the book you need to know in order to know the book of Revelation. Can I say that again? We are starting Zechariah this Wednesday evening. And the reason we're doing so is I've told you you can't understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. Well, now that we've been through it, do you understand what we just said? You gotta have an understanding of it. Well, the parallels are almost identical, chapter for chapter, in different forms of typology, but they're there, and you'll, you'll see them unfold. So, Zechariah is a book that we need to know in order to know Revelation. Um, here in chapter five, we have the flying scroll. Zechariah turns and he raised my eyes and there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And he answered, well, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubics and its width 10 cubics. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief will be expelled according to what is written in the sides of the scroll. And every perjurer shall be expelled according to what is on that side of it, I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It's another way of saying, I'm going to send out Daniel's 70th week. I'm going to send out the time of Jacob's trouble. I'm going to send out the great indignation, or what we call, in most cases, the great tribulation. This is what's being referred to, because I'm going to send out. What's in this flying scroll? A curse. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. 
and it shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. Now, eventually, we're gonna, these are eight visions that are going to occur here, and we'll be coming back to the woman in the basket, but not next week. Some of these aren't necessarily in a chronological order, I uh, should also point out. But time-wise, where are we? Well, um, it's also, also uh, during the time of the start of the reconstruction of the temple uh, during Zechariah's time. Uh, the exile was in the process of um, ending at that time. More and more were coming back. Uh, Zechariah 6 actually starts the tribulation. Uh, Zechariah 14 is all about the second coming of the Lord. And Zechariah 5, 11, we'll be dressing about this woman in the back basket that is taken to uh, the plains of Shinar. And that's a very interesting study for me, and I can't, can't wait till we go there. We'll probably spend one whole morning just talking about the plains of Shinar and what I believe is there. Want a little teaser? Israel just made a peace agreement with the United Arab Emirates. But that's just like, there's nothing in the United Arab Emirates except one thing. It's called Dubai. And I've had my suspicions about this particular place. It's the playground of the multi-rich Arabs, Europeans, Americans. I'm flashing back to the cafe listening to a couple have lunch. Boy, now I'm really getting sidetracked. And um, I heard him over say to the gal he was having lunch with that he was born and raised in Dubai. Well, I introduced myself and I said, can I talk to you for a little bit? I said, you were raised in Dubai? I'm very interested in this city. What's it like growing up in Dubai? Oh, he said, that's easy. It's Wall Street, Las Vegas, and Hollywood all rolled in one. Those were his exact words. You can get and do anything you want in Dubai. And I'm saving that as a little teaser because we're going to go into much more depth in there. Um, At the time, and what first got my brain cooking on this is they were looking for workers in India, and I used to go to India quite a bit. And their project, they say, we're going to build the tallest building in the world. So the tallest building in the world, Dubai. And then my head really started spinning. Enough teasing back to the Bible study. (laughs) More more information coming. All right, uh, let's read verses 2 through 5. And back in Revelation 5. And tells us that I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open a scroll and loose the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, this is interesting, or under the earth, was able to open a scroll or look on it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look upon it. Evidently, Um, um, this is causing great anguish and brokenness for John. We'll get into that in five. 
But basically what it's saying here is no man of Adam's line has the right to open the book and take charge of this planet. There have been many who have tried, the Mussolinis, the Hitlers, the Stalins, so on and so forth, who've tried to do it, um, all with no success. Um, None of Adam's line qualifies. There is none today. The ruler must be a redeemer um, because when Adam sinned, he had the title deed and he was told to oversee, name the animals, uh, plant a garden, and it was his until the day that it was forfeited because um, they challenged the word of God and they were tempted and Eve was seduced and she yielded. And so it fell out of man's hands into what the scriptures call the God of this world. And he has, believe me, he has an agenda. The ruler must be a redeemer, somebody who could redeem it back. Um, The sovereign must be a savior of mankind and Jesus Christ is the only one. Now again, as people, I can't believe what the Southern Baptist Convention is doing right now. It's it's unthinkable. Don't even get me sidetracked or because I'll get upset <laughs> on, on um, just how bad the church has gotten, how much it's compromised in so many areas. Only Jesus Christ. Now, what's your point, Dwight? Um, even the Pope says you don't have to evangelize Muslims. We're all serving the same God. What? The Pope? This goes against their own doctrine and theologies. But yet, you know, all restraints are being cast off. And my friends, you are going to be more and more marginalized because you're going to be one of those group of people that says Jesus Christ is the only way. There's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. You'll be marked, you'll be hated, you'll be ridiculed because you're so bigoted and narrow-minded. Well, it's like, like Paul, and they may actually come and say you can't do this or do that or whatever. And again, we have to point back to Acts when they said the same thing to Peter and John. You can't talk anymore in the name of this Jesus. Well, either Peter or John says, tell you what, you decide for us. Do we listen to you or do we listen to God? And uh, basically he was saying like Joshua, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. What are you gonna do? And believe me, if you're not really rooted and grounded in this book, and really have, understand that it's got a plan all the way from Genesis to Revelation, and we're just watching it unfold, should this surprise any of us? I have to admit, to the degree that the deception is in the world today, I'm surprised with that. The quickness and how quickly our world has changed since the beginning of this year totally blows my mind. Who would have thought in a thousand years? Did I say thunk? I think I said thunk. (laughs) Who would have thunk it? Dad would have liked it. All right, so Satan is working on it, but he can't do it either. We know the end of the book, and we know that he's going to be the kingpin player when we get into the book of Revelation, starting when we get to chapter six, verse one. We'll only get to one verse next week because there's so much 
that's said about the Antichrist. He is the rider on the white horse, so that's where we're going to be um, next year. Let's look at let's look at the emotional response that this has on John in verse five. What did I say? See, you guys know my hearing. Did I? What did I say? Next year. Next, it's not, next week is not next year. <laughs> this is about the third week in a row I've had to see if you guys are listening or not. <laughs> Come on. Oh, am I going to hear it from my wife later? <laughs> well, you should know me by now. John's emotional response here. So... I wept much because no one was found worthy. In other words, in verse five, one of the elders said to me, do not weep, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals. But before that happens, John cannot handle the thought of this world going on in its present condition. And as a result, he wept much, he grieved, and he was groaning. All right, you know I've taken sidetracks before, but this is something that um, I feel needs to be addressed from the pulpit, so we're taking a diversion here. But I want to point out before we go, the effect, as John looks at the possibility that the world would go on like this and nobody can take the scroll out of the Father's heads, he breaks down. He cannot handle it emotionally. So I want to do a little sidetrack here. And just like a picture is worth a thousand words, um, I'm going to be putting a picture up on the screen shortly. And then I'm going to introduce a one-minute song to go along with the picture. Because I want to address the emotional and mental impact of the Corona-19 virus, and I want to do it in two ways. I want to do it for how believers respond to it, and I want to address it how a non-believer would respond to it. I pray and hope everybody here knows Jesus and is born again. Um, But there's many that watch us from all all over the place, and maybe they're not um, born again. And um, I don't know how anybody could handle I'm just being honest with you now. Um, I get depressed. I personally get upset. Um, This is from the U.S. News. Levels of anxiety, addiction, suicidal thoughts are soaring in the pandemic. This is August 13th from Health Daily News. The pandemic is taking a big toll on the American psyche. A new government report found that about 41% of adults surveyed in late June reported an adverse mental or behavioral health condition. That's a big rise from 2019. For example, the data shows that the number of Americans suffering from anxiety disorder had tripled by late June compared to the same time last year and the number of those with depression had jumped fourfold. The findings based on surveys conducted by the U.S. um, Center of Disease Control on June 24th through the 30th also shows that one quarter of the survey respondents reported symptoms of trauma, 
stress-related disorders. Now, everybody here works or knows somebody that is um, not saved. And I'm being honest with you, I don't know how they're handling it. Because a lot of these people lost their business. A lot of the people don't have jobs anymore. Our school system doesn't know what it's going to do. As of yesterday, they're saying they're going to do it over the internet. So what does that mean? That means if both parents are working, one of them is going to have to stay at home right now. And the psychological effects, how do you explain this to a three or four-year-old? No, you can't do this, you got to stay home, but I want to go to school, mommy, why can't I? And they got to deal with this. So the how non-believers would be able to deal with it and how we deal with it. And I'm saying this because we can come to church and sing the joy of the Lord is our strength and have to go home and feel like this. Picture on screen. I actually Googled. I wanted a picture of somebody who looked depressed. He looks pretty depressed to me. One picture is worth a thousand words. But like the psalmist, and I'm going to go to the psalms, when David was depressed, and all of the psalms are put to music. Is everybody aware of that? Music amplifies the emotion. So I'm going to play one minute of one of my favorite singer-songwriters just to go along with this, and I want you to say la on this for a moment. And uh, play the music, please, and just absorb it, and then I'll address it. Sometimes the road leads through dark places Sometimes the darkness is your friend Today these eyes scan bleached out land For the coming of the outbound stage Facing the cage Facing the cage Bruce's reference to waiting for the outbound stage is his way of saying the rapture of the church. So if you'd turn with me to Romans chapter eight at this time, and one of the reasons I want to address this and I'm gonna be addressing it on a regular basis because we're getting bombarded every single day with lies and deceptions that are being perpetrated upon us. The gloves are off. They're going to want your thinking one way, 
and I have absolutely no doubt that the, their end game is uh, the downfall of the United States of America. And that's what I believe. The numbers are, that are being reported in the actual events, I'm quoting f- uh, from a couple of articles from our friend Patrick Woods. And um, uh, like I said, me personally, I get angry. But you know it's okay to get angry and say not? Um, because I know people that want to visit uh, people in a nursing home. And just till recently, they're allowing that. What if your mother or father's in a nursing home dying and you can't go in and see them? That makes me angry. There's the closest you could get and say, no, you can't do it. You know what I just learned this week? You know why you're supposed to wear a mask? I always thought until two days ago, you wear a mask so you don't get COVID-19. That's not why you wear a mask. You wear a mask because they assume that you already have it. I didn't know that. So I'm the one who's sick, so, I'm not, so I don't give it to you. All right, let me quote a couple of things from Patrick uh, from his articles. The CDC confesses to lying about COVID-19 death counts. Uh, CDC confirms extreme low COVID-19 death rates. The number of death rates that are reported, I've uh, done quite a bit of research on this, are amped up between 50 and 90%. And there's different views, but the lowest one is 50. It's being ramped up. And then an article from Patrick, um, a face mask posts serious risk to your health. There's a whole survey that's done on that where it's more dangerous for you to wear one than not to wear one. And you can do your own homework on that. Nurse, and this is a different article, nursing homes shocked at insanely wrong COVID-19 data. And Patrick gives one example here. When the administrator of Sagas Rehab, a nursery center in Sagas, Massachusetts, heard that a new uh, Medicare website reported her facility had 794 confirmed cases of COVID-19, the second highest in in the country, and 281 uh, cases among staff, she gasped. She said, oh my God, where are they getting those numbers from, said Josephine Ajayi. That doesn't make any sense. Those weren't the numbers that her facility reported to the CDC National Healthcare Safety Network under new rules from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, she said. Uh, Josephine said that they have 80 beds at her facility. Actually reported 45 residents had tested positive and five residents died. Although the CMS website showed no um, Sagus deaths, about 19 staff members tested positive for the virus and most have returned to work, she said. And so we're getting lied to on a grand scale. To do what? To produce fear. And what I want to do for those who um, are trying to do the best you can to Quote Romans 8, all things work together for good. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We're doing our best our can to hang on to the blessed hope. We're trying to do that, but the fact of the matter is we're human. The fact of the matter is Jesus was human, and he was so stressed out when he realized what going to the cross would mean. He was so aware of it, he began to sweat great drops of blood. 
Now, I've heard doctors say that you can reach such an emotional point of stress where that actually does happen. To the point where he says, Father, um, if there's any other way, any other way that mankind can be saved except me going to that cross, that's what I vote for. Then he clarified it. Nevertheless, not my will be done, Lord, but yours. There was no other way. There's no other way for the world to be redeemed, my friends. There's no other way that we could be saved except he did it. It does tell us for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. But in the moment, right before it happened, he's praying. So if you're in Romans chapter eight, drawing your um, attention to verses 18, let's pick it up there. I want you to know it's okay when you're going through and you feel that Christians actually can get depressed, is what I'm saying, and you're not in sin if you do. So he begins by saying in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Well, what does that mean? My cross-reference here is um, uh, Genesis three seventeen to 19, which is what God cursed the earth, placed a curse on it. So all creation is groaning uh, because of what happened back there, and creation is waiting. Verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And not only they, now we switch gears and talks about you and I. And not only they, but we also who are the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan. Do you know it's okay to groan? You know that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit can interpret your sighs and your groans? That he knows how to pray and intercede for you? Groaning is biblical. It says so right here. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the outbound stage, the rapture of the church, the redemption of our body. So we'll be coming back to um, this shortly because of um, the hope that's here and that's what makes a difference. Uh, Let's do it right now. We're we're here, we won't have to flip pages. Let's go back to verse 18, our first verse. For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Different perspective all of a sudden. Yes, we're going through suffering now, but it's nothing compared to what heavenly scene you just saw that you're gonna be a part of. Nothing. To uh, be able to turn to the worship song that's going to be compared to what we're going through now, we're not talking apples and apples. Let's go down to verse 23 through 35. 23, and not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the adoption and redemptions of our body. Verse 24, For we are saved by hope. 
But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In other words, we could probably go through some bad times. Um, The rumors I'm hearing right now, they're already trying to create another virus that's worse than the one that we have right now. Well, what if they do? And we see the collapse of the United States economy. I believe, my friends, that's a very realistic possibility. Now, having said that, as believers, we groan. But how in the world does a non-believer handle this stuff? With the anxiety, the thoughts of suicide, off the charts like never before. Why am I addressing it? Because it's the truth, number one, and I think it needs to be shared from more pulpits on, the, on the, what's really going on, and it's okay to be in the fiery furnace, okay, and really going through it. Here's the good news. I will never leave you. I'm not going nowhere. I will never forsake you. Was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery trial? Literally. But who was in there with him? The Lord was in there with him. So, all that to say this. It's okay to have rough days right now. Be honest with yourself. Don't say, oh, it's all going to work out for good somehow, some way. Well, not always. Turn with me to... At 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talking about the resurrection. That's our hope. He said, but he he puts it in context because some in Corinth were saying there is no resurrection. So he addresses it in verse 13. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we testify of God that he raised up Christ, whom if he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. And if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, futile, and you are still in your sins. Now there is a scary thought. And then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, they're, they're perished, And here's a verse I want you to see. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are men most pitiable. If there is no resurrection, if we don't have the the hope of heaven, then we are most pitiful on this world. It means we have really no hope. Even though we have this hope, someday we feel like the guy on the screen. Do you dare ask for an amen at this point? Someday, if we're honest, we say yes. All right, let me give you some two Old Testament scriptures. I'm glad the Lord put the book of Job in the Bible. You know, the whole book is a bummer. The whole book, until you get to the last two chapters. So turn with me to Job chapter one. I I should say uh, Job chapter three. And here, he's so depressed. We read, I'll just read the first um, eight or nine verses, then a couple more. Job 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, 
May the day perish of which I was born. In a night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and a shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day. Jump over to verses 24 to 26. For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groaning pour out like water. For the thing that I've greatly feared has come upon me, and what I have dreaded has happened to me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. You know, this is basically the whole book of Job. And his friends... I'll take any enemies over Job's friends any day of the week. You know, they ragged on him the whole book and say, come on, Job, just get it off your chest. Obviously, um, God doesn't punish the, the righteous. What did you do wrong? Fess up and everything will be cool. Don't worry about it. My Bible says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to weep with those who weep. And when a brother or sister is going through a fiery trial, then you hang with them and put your arms around them and you love on them. And if uh, they're having a party, then party with them, you know? So let's go to a man after God's own heart and let's look at Psalm 55 and we'll read five verses from there. Psalm 55. Remember all the Psalms were put to music. There's different types. There's Messianic Psalms. But this one here Psalm 55, I'm just gonna read the first eight verses. Here's my hero, David, but he's going through it. And we read verse one, give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me, I'm restless in my complaint and I moan noisily because the voice of the enemy, because the oppressor of the wicked for they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is severely pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Uh, Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me, and I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, and then I would fly away and be at rest. Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten my scene from the windy storm of the tempest. This is our hero, David. But he's pouring his heart out um, to the Lord. Okay, enough with trying to help you feel good. So let's go back to the book of Revelation chapter five. Revelation chapter five, verse five, we read... One of the elders said, John, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose the seven seals. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who has the right and title to the earth. He not only redeemed you and I, but he also redeemed the earth. He is identified in this section and in all ministries that relate to the earth. The lion of the tribe of Judah identifies him. Of course, with the tribe of Judah, of the people of Israel, when old Jacob was dying, he called his 12 sons around him, and this is the prophecy he gave concerning Judah. He said, Judah, you're a lion's whelp from the prey. Um, My son, thou art gone up, uh, a lion's whelp, and he will stoop down and he'll crouch as a lion, as an old lion, who will arouse him up? And then it says, a scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And unto him shall be the gathering of the people. The Lord Jesus is a lion of the tribe of Judah. He's also the root of David. Uh, That great chapter of God's covenant with David saying, I'm going to bring one in your line who shall rule, not only over these people, but over the whole earth. The Lord Jesus Christ has the right to rule, and he is the fulfillment of the prophecies made in the Old Testament relating to the future of the world. All of these prophecies will be fulfilled at the second coming and um, the establishment of the kingdom age. Let's move on to verses six and seven. Then I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures. Now when we read that, we have a little different perspective after what we saw this morning. And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though he had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and let's just hold it there. First of all, notice he's not sitting anymore um, like he would have been. He sits at the right hand of God to continually intercede for you and I. That's where he was, but he's gonna come down. The fact that he's standing here and not sitting at the right hand meaning something is about to change. Uh, This speaks of um, uh, not being in the throne, but he's getting ready now to not only take the scroll, but as we're going to see, chapter six, verse one, he's actually gonna open the first seal, and we'll get to that next week. Seven horns denotes complete power. A horn speaks of power, Daniel seven and eight. He is omnipotent, Seven eyes denotes complete knowledge. He's omniscient, he's um, omnipotent, and he's omnipresent. There's no place that the Lord can't be. The Lord Jesus Christ is, is a lion, and he's also a lamb. The lion character refers to his second coming. The lamb character refers to his first coming. The lion is symbolic of his ministry, The lamb is symbolic of his meekness. As a lion, he is sovereign. As a lamb, he is a savior. As a lion, he is a judge. And as a lamb, he is judged when he was judged on Calvary's cross. 
The lion represents the government of God and the lamb represents the grace of God. Brings us to eight through 10. Introduced to a group that we find in heaven. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. I asked the worship team to sing the songs this morning, nothing but the blood, because of this verse right here. He was redeemed by the most valuable commodity in the universe, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. Really good place for an amen. amen. Nothing is more valuable. With everything that's going on, nothing is more valuable than your salvation. Tell me what's more valuable than your salvation. Knowing that your name is in the book of life. Knowing that you're going to heaven. How, did, how was that accomplished? Well, you were redeemed. How? Through the suffering of the blood. That's why it's nothing but the blood. Out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nations, this can only be the church. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. This is one of the, the promises that the Lord made to the church. Notice, and this is important in um, 8 through 10, the changing of the pronoun from us to them is important. They are praising the Lamb for those yet to be saved on the earth, the tribulation saints. A kingdom and priest refers to the tribulation saints. The church will not reign on the earth, but will rule over the earth. So we have tribulation saints they are praying for about here, but only the church that's in heaven can speak this song. So again, I think it's one of the greatest arguments for the pre-trib rapture is you find the church singing a song. Well, where are they? Well, they're in heaven. That brings us to our last section here, verses 11 through 14. Good place to break out the hallelujah chorus because the church is no longer singing but all of creation, including this innumerable amount of angels. So let's pick it up and we'll read 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands and thousands at the very least, hundreds of millions of hundreds of millions of hundreds of millions of intelligent creatures that worship the Lamb. They don't talk about salvation. They don't talk about redemption. You have redeemed us by your blood. Angels can't be redeemed. That's why Jesus said hell was made for the devil and his angels. It's eternal. They're eternal. You're eternal. I'm eternal. So now we have the angels and the elders um, saying with a loud voice, so they're not, not singing at this time. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom 
and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such are all in the sea and all that are in them are heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And these four living cherubim creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and forever. I guess I close with this this morning because this this came up quite a bit in men's prayer about the opportunities that we have right now because people are actually asking questions that ordinarily you would get blown off. But just bringing it up a little bit and saying, do you know this? This is what they're saying. But Have you done any research on it and checked it out for yourself? I was reading two days ago I'll close with a story um, that really gives us an unprecedented time. I'm just going to take and assume that every person here has said the sinner's prayer, has given your life personally to Jesus Christ, and that no matter what happens, uh, the worst that could happen is you could die and go to heaven. That's the worst that could happen. And having, having said that, I've been noticing a lot more police cars with their lights on, a lot more ambulances. And this happened to me coming to Men's Prayer yesterday. And I was reading just the day before on, um, on my wisdom to the day. I'm going to read this first and then tell you the story of what happened to me yesterday. It's called Fault Finders versus Healers. Uh, Chuck is quoting John 9, verse 2, and his disciples ask him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're thinking like Job's friends. <laughs> Job, what did you do wrong? When an accident occurs, two types of emergency vehicles arrive on the scene. The first to arrive are usually the police, and they try to determine who is at fault and if necessary, give a citation to the guilty party. The paramedics arrive next. They have no real concern as who's to fault. They just want to alleviate the pain and suffering. The disciples passed by a blind man. Like policemen, they wanted to know immediately assess blame for the, uh, the cause of his, the casualty. And Jesus declared that neither the parents nor the man was at fault but that the works of God might be made manifest in him when Jesus was, had healed him. God has called us to be paramedics rather than policemen. How do you look at human tragedy? We're in one now. Do we look like a policeman or like a paramedic? Jesus said that God did not send him into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Often a person's life is shattered because they are repeating the reaping the consequences of their own rebellion against God. Do you shake your finger in his face and say, if you had not done this or that, um, you wouldn't be in this situation? Do you have your code book out setting them their violation of the law? Or do you come as a paramedic, seeking to bind up their wounds? 
Ours is the responsibility of finding the reason for the suffering. Um, but to seek to heal the damage that has been done. Let me read that last sentence again. Ours is not the responsibility of finding the reason for the suffering, but to seek to heal the damage which has been done, even as Jesus did. I'm pulling out of my driveway. Two blocks down, I see a squad car. Lights out. So cars are pulling over, and I'm driving one block, and all of a sudden I see in my rear view mirror an ambulance. So I, I got police officer in front of me, and I got an ambulance behind me. Of course, I'm curious, so I pull over, and I let the ambulance go by, and I'm thinking to myself, I just read this yesterday. (laughs) And so I pull over close enough to see what was going on. Nobody was in the police car. Why wasn't anybody in the police car? Because he's inside finding out who's at fault, what went wrong. And as he's gone, the ambulance pulls in, and they're taking out a gurney, so I don't know what happened. But I do know, right now, I'll be honest with you, the first thing that comes to mind is somebody couldn't take it anymore. And they decided they're gonna check out. Enough. And there's, uh, we have a neighbor, and I won't mention her name, because I wouldn't want to embarrass her. Um, Her husband was put in the hospital about a month ago. And um, his wife of, I don't know how many, 50 years, was not allowed to go and visit him. And they put him in a COVID-19 um, facility. And so he died, and she was not allowed to go in and see him. Um, my wife has been witnessing to this woman. And um, not really open, but a little bit more open on, now on a, a more basis now that a lot of this is sinking in. What are you saying, Dwight? I say right now, the only thing that really matters is that your name is put in the book of life. And if you don't know how to go about doing that, let me just close by telling you how simple it is to have certainty. I had somebody up in the office and I was showing him my, my dad's um, uh, um, funeral card. You know, the cards you get at a funeral. His life verse was on there. Most of you know his story. He got saved later in life. And his big question was, how can a person know for sure they're going to heaven? He was brought up Protestant, never heard about being born again, and he got mad when he got saved. And he went back and talked to the Protestant pastor, I've been here for 25 years, why didn't you tell me I had to be born again? So, first of all, I like to say there can be no conversion without conviction. And if you don't know for sure that uh, your name is put in a book of life. Now I know there's people that have the temperament that feel whenever something like this is said, they either gotta raise their hand or say the sinner's prayer uh, again, just to be sure. (laughs) And I know there's some people that think like that. Now, he heard you the first time. And when he heard you the first time, he says, now when you sin, just confess your sin. And he is faithful and just to forgive you from your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. P.S., there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, verse 1. If you gave your heart to Jesus, don't 
say the sinner's prayer over again just to be sure, you know, you don't want to be sure. But there's a lot of pe- people watching. They're online, they got a lot of time. And they're just surfing the web right now. A lot of new listeners. And so this is what you need to do. And I'll close, and I want to close this morning with any that have never given their life to Christ. You know deep down inside you're a sinner. I'm an atheist. You're lying to me. You're a Christian, you're telling me I'm a liar? No, not only that, but you're a fool too. (laughs) The fool has said in his heart there is no God. That makes you a fool. And he says, I know you're lying. How do you know I'm lying? I says, well, creation itself is there as a testimony to a non-believer so that they are without excuse because they're suppressing keeping it down inside. They're suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. Of course they know there's a God. Um, I gave away a God of wonders yesterday for a guy who came over trying to um, uh, get my air conditioner fixed. And when he didn't fix it because I needed some parts that he didn't have, cost me 250 bucks to give away a God of Wonders. <laughs> I told my wife, honey, I think the whole thing just happened, so this guy needs to get saved. That's all I can figure out. What's your point, Dwight, as we close with the sinner's prayer? Take advantage like you've never done before, whether it's the guy who comes to fix your air conditioner or you see a possible open door. Try to work the conversation around what's going on and just say, are you at peace with God? If you died today, would you go to heaven? Honestly, in in your own heart. So as we close in prayer this morning, um, I'm gonna pray what we call the sinner's prayer. I'm not gonna ask you to pray out loud with me, but in your heart, if you're not uh, sure that you've ever given your life to Jesus Christ, you pray this prayer with me, and especially maybe those that are watching live stream right now. Let's pray. Oh God, I believe I am a sinner. And I'm sorry, Lord, for my sins. Please forgive me. I want to turn from my sin. So Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And I will confess you before men. From now on, I want to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.